Hi, I'm Phil Elbertelli, and this is The Secret World of the Gnostics. Perhaps somewhat contrary to popular belief, early Christianity wasn't one monolithic movement. There were numerous competing sects with a range of doctrinal differences. One could easily argue that the most fascinating and controversial of these early Christian sects were the Gnostics. From the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge, the Gnostics themselves were divided into different schools, but as a whole you could say they were a group steeped in mysticism, with a core focus on the attainment of secret or inner knowledge pertaining to the self and the nature of God, usually by means of recondite formulas, repetitive chanting, etc. It used to be erroneously thought that Gnosticism predated Christianity, but it seems to be more the case that it is a uniquely Christian movement, flourishing in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, but nevertheless heavily influenced by earlier traditions, such as Hellenistic philosophy, Zoroastrianism, and Persian and Egyptian mythology. Many of the tenets of Gnosticism would be considered by modern Christians, as well as the Orthodox Church Fathers of their own time, as heretical. One such concept is that of the Demiurge. The Gnostics placed a heavy emphasis on the duality of spirit and matter. They believed the material world was fashioned by an inferior being, a kind of false god beneath the true god. The word Demiurge comes from the Latin Demiurgis, by way of the Greek Demiurgos meaning artisan or craftsman. The Demiurge was thought to be at best, simply imperfect or blind and foolish, and at worst outright evil or intentionally malicious. The Gnostics held a belief in the Pleroma, the divine fullness or totality of things, through which the true God or monad expresses or reveals himself. From the Pleroma come emanations in the form of other divine beings, such as Aeon. The last emanation is said to be Sophia, meaning wisdom. A common Gnostic story tells of how Sophia gave birth to the monstrous offspring that would become the Demiurge. Ashamed of her offspring, she wrapped it in a cloud where it was unaware of the Pleroma and its own mother. Thinking itself the supreme being, it fashioned the material world, leading to the trapping of spirit and matter. The identity and name of the Demiurge varied between Gnostic schools. Sometimes he was known as Samael, Aramaic for blind god, or Sakhlis meaning fool or foolish. He was also identified at times as Araman, the chief evil being in Zoroastrianism. Sometimes even Satan, and as shocking as it might sound to Christian ears, sometimes he was even identified as El or Yahweh. Some Gnostic teachers, as well as Marcion of Sinope, an important early church father, believe that the God of the Old Testament was the evil or corrupt Demiurge, and that the true God had sent Jesus to save mankind. Due to his distaste of the God of the Hebrew Bible, Marcion rejected the Old Testament and chose to focus on Christian writings. In fact, although he was considered heretical by other church fathers, he is known and respected for putting together and publishing the earliest collection of extant New Testament books. The Gnostics' disdain for the material world led to the belief that Jesus was pure spirit and never fully embodied in the flesh. This in turn led to the belief that he had never actually suffered and died on the cross. This idea of Jesus escaping death on the cross would be echoed several centuries later in the teachings of Islam. 
One of my favorite religious documentaries, A&E's Christianity, The First Thousand Years, claims that the second century Gnostic teacher Basilides, based in Alexandria, Egypt, identified the Demiurge as a Braxis, a blind and insane angel, Although the description of the Demiurge as blind and insane seems fairly accurate, I couldn't find the idea of Abraxas as the Demiurge corroborated anywhere else. To the contrary, it seems that Abraxas was held in high esteem by the Gnostics. It appears to be sometimes referred to as a magical word or formula due to its numerical significance, and sometimes referred to specifically as the name of a supreme being. Here's what the early church father Tertullian has to say. Afterwards broke out the heretic Basilides. He affirms that there is a supreme deity by name Abraxas, by whom was created mind, which in Greek he calls nous, that then sprang the world, that of him issued providence, virtue, and wisdom, that out of these subsequently were made principalities, powers, and angels, that there issued infinite issues and processions of angels, that by these angels 365 heavens were formed, in the world in honor of Abraxas, whose name, if computed, has in itself this number. Now among the last of the angels, those who made this world, he places the God of the Jews latest, that is, the God of the law and of the prophets, whom he denies to be a God, but affirms to be an angel. Tertullian states that Abraxas is to the Gnostics the creator of mind, a lofty position which Irenaeus, a critic of the Gnostics in his writings, equates with the unbegotten father. Hippolytus, when discussing the Gnostics, refers to Abraxas as their great archon, for his name contains the number 365, the number of days in a year. Strangely enough, in Gnostic art often carved into gemstones, appropriately enough referred to as Abraxas stones, Abraxas is most often depicted as having the body and arms of a man, with the head of a rooster and serpents or scorpions for legs, and usually riding on a chariot. In some Gnostic schools, there existed the concept of Barbalo, said to be the first emanation of God and the supreme female principle. In the Gnostic text known as the Apocryphon of John, she is described thusly, This is the first thought, his image, she became the womb of everything, for it is she who is prior to them all, the mother-father, the first man, Anthropus, the Holy Spirit, the thrice male, the thrice powerful, the thrice named androgynous one, and the eternal aeon among the invisible ones, and the first to come forth. Until relatively recent times, most of what we knew about Gnosticism came from the writings of early church fathers, that is until a breakthrough discovery in 1945. In Nag Hammadi, Egypt, a farmer, or farmers, depending on the account, were searching for bird droppings to use as fertilizer when they discovered a cave containing clay jars. One of the men feared that a large unopened jar might contain a djinn, but found the courage to nevertheless smash it with his maul. To his disappointment, the jars only contained old papyri. To the horror of historians everywhere, the man's mother actually used some of the priceless texts as fuel for her fireplace. The remaining 50-something-odd texts have come to be known as the Nag Hammadi Library, or the Gnostic Gospels. Generally speaking, the texts date back to in between the 2nd and 4th centuries CE. 
One very important text dating back to the middle of the second century is known as the Gospel of Thomas. Rather than telling a story or recounting events, it's simply a collection of the wise sayings of Jesus. Many are similar to those found in the canonical Gospels, while others more in keeping with Gnosticism are more mystical and enigmatic. To quote biblical scholar Elaine Pagels when reciting one of her favorite verses, if you bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will destroy you. If it wasn't for its later date, one might be tempted to mistake the Gospel of Thomas for the elusive Q, a hypothetical gospel containing the sayings of Jesus, referred to by the authors of the three canonical synoptic gospels. There is a long list of Gnostic texts with intriguing and controversial names, such as the Sophia of Jesus Christ, the Apocalypse or Revelation of Adam, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Secret Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mary, possibly Mary Magdalene, and even the Gospel of Judas, found on the Antiquities Black Market in the 1980s. The Gospel of Judas is written in the ancient Egyptian language of Coptic, and it is thought to date back to the 3rd century. It consists of conversations between Judas Iscariot and Jesus. It paints Judas in a sympathetic light. Judas is portrayed as receiving secret teachings or wisdom from Jesus, denied the other apostles. And Judas doesn't betray Christ, but rather his actions, i.e. turning Jesus over to the authorities, are in strict keeping with Jesus' own orders. On a side note, I remember Ohio Governor John Kasich, then a Fox News host, having a near conniption on his television show because he was sick of all these books like the Gospel of Judas, which he may have referred to as garbage or crap. Mr. Kasich, you may resent a text because it contradicts your personal religious beliefs, but it doesn't change the fact that this text is an authentic 3rd century document deserving of scientific and historical respect and inquiry. Sadly, as rich and interesting as some of these Gnostic texts are, most likely due to their perceived heretical nature, they didn't make the final cut into the canonical Bible. But maybe it's more fun to have them relegated to the non-canonical world of apocrypha and forbidden or outside texts. Thank you for listening to The Secret World of the Gnostics.